In order to survive as a business today, it's really important that you have a workforce that's as diverse as the world itself is, gaining a deeper and more nuanced understanding of what different generations value, and more importantly, where there's common ground, can be hugely instrumental in attracting and retaining employees of all ages. Hello and welcome to another edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, advancing the equipment manufacturing industry. I'm Dusty Weiss. If you take a look at the people who work at your company, it's not going to take you long to see that the faces are starting to change. Baby boomers are retiring from the workforce, and equipment manufacturers who want to stay competitive are going to need to attract younger workers. But many companies don't really have a plan for how to do this. And those that do might be basing it on the false notion that everyone born in the same 20-year time span thinks the same. And that is just not the case. So in this edition of the podcast, we're going to talk to Courtney Scharf from Trend Hunter about their more precise concept of micro-generations and the best practices for building an intergenerational workforce at your company. These are the sorts of critical insights that we work to dig up here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Each month, we explore a new subject area to help keep your business on the cutting edge of the heavy equipment industry. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to our podcast feed so you don't miss an episode. We also want to know what you think. Post a comment, rate us, or leave us a review in whatever your favorite podcasting app is. It helps other industry pros like you find our show and helps us keep it relevant to you. In that vein, we hear regularly from AEM members that one of their greatest pain points is recruiting and retaining new employees, both on the manufacturing floor and in other roles as well. And while that's certainly not a unique situation in the current economy, in manufacturing, construction, and agriculture especially, it's become apparent that there's a bit of a generational shift in play. Part of the issue is that younger workers have different experiences, different attitudes, and expectations that they bring to the workplace. And in some cases, part of the issue is that employers have had a hard time evolving. In fact, the mental framework that we use to define generations in the workforce is itself a bit of an outdated concept. And so to help us develop a new approach to this challenge, today's guest is Courtney Scharf, the Senior Vice President of Research Services at Trend Hunter. Since 2012, she's been a part of the team at Trend Hunter, a web community where big data, research, and human insights are leveraged to help enterprises stay on the cutting edge of societal trends. So, Courtney Scharf, thanks for joining us here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Appreciate your making the time. How are things up in, uh, you're based out of Toronto, right? I am. It's already quite cold. I'm wearing a full-length uh, winter jacket, so that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, I, I can't say I'm necessarily pleased with our introduction to winter here in Wisconsin either. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's snowing as we speak right now, and that's just that's not okay. <laughs> you know the struggle. My heart goes out. Uh, so as we begin this conversation, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the role that generational stereotyping plays in shaping the dialogue between different cohorts. So what are some of those stereotypes that are associated with generations in today's workforce, and why are they so counterproductive to building a good workforce? 
Yeah. So this is a fun question. And I just want to reiterate that these are not my own opinions. These are just the stereotypes that are out there. But the basic ones that we hear over and over again are that boomers are wealthy and they're technologically inept. We hear that millennials are, of course, the classic, very entitled. Gen Z are basically just a bunch of tech-obsessed robots with no social skills and Frankly, uh, everybody says that nobody cares about Gen X. I, it's pretty harsh. <laughs> I was worried there for a second that you were actually going to forget about Gen X and, <laughs> and confirm that stereotype. But those aren't necessarily true statements about any of those generations. And in fact, I would imagine they can be really counterproductive to creating an intragenerational workforce that works well together. Absolutely. They're, they're so counterproductive, kind of in the same way that any stereotype is. It creates a bit of a ceiling and an expectation set and a total bias against individuals. And it can really you know, put a cap in terms of what people's potential are and what kind of people you're bringing together to create a better outcome. I feel like you only need to like tune into the discussion on Twitter right now for a sampling of why generational stereotyping is so counterproductive, because right now Twitter is like 90 percent millennials and boomers sniping at each other. And it's just it, it makes my head spin. Yeah, it's funny that we're having this conversation this week after the OK Boomer epidemic. It's just this huge backlash to all this kind of exhausting, really reductive conversation around different generations and people are tired of it. All right. So let's turn it on its ear then. What are some of the strengths that each generation actually brings to the workplace? Yes. Okay. So I, we're going to go into micro generations later, but here I'm going to keep things pretty broad just through the interest of time. So for boomers, of course, the number one thing that they bring to the table is just that life experience. And that's really not something you could even take a course on. So it's something that we should really respect from them um, and take into account. Uh, with Gen X, you have a really interesting mix there because uh, in the older Gen X, you have that resilience and dependability after living through a couple of recessions. And you also have the rebellionist that's sort of inherent and that we know about Gen X. So the majority of startup founders are actually in Gen X. So they are some of the ones that are sort of re-envisioning the way that we do work and what a modern workforce looks like. Uh, for millennials, they, of course, bring a fresh perspective and they're really used to the idea of disruption. So they're great at helping a company really navigate an up and coming competitor and how things are going to look in the future. Gen Z is not really in the workforce so far. Yeah, we haven't really figured them out yet. No, no, TBD, <laughs> but they are very entrepreneurial and we know that they have a huge, um, a huge desire to really change the way the world is. So I wouldn't be surprised if that extends to the workplace as well. You know, I looked into a little bit of your research at uh, Trend Hunter, and I saw that millennials are universally the most despised generation, even among themselves, among millennials. <laughs> and so speaking as one millennial to another, why is that? Why do people hate us? And, and is that a fair characterization of our generation? I, it's a really interesting question because, I mean, the basic thing about millennials is that it's such an enormous group. So to say that you hate millennials is like saying that you hate a huge portion of the entire population. It's just kind of absurd. Uh, but I think what's happened with millennials is that a lot of it has to actually do with media. It became a very literally lucrative thing to write about millennials and sort of argue about why the world was changing and how millennials are sort of at fault for a lot of the things that older generations don't like. Um, so we've sort of become the scapegoat when it comes to a lot of the things that people don't like that's changing about the world today. And I don't necessarily think that it's fair or even accurate a lot of the time. So looking at this then from an employer perspective, why is it so important for employers to have a good understanding of the different generational mindsets that are out there. 
And and why does it seem like so many employers struggle with that issue? Yeah. So the reason why understanding generational mindsets is so important is because age diversity is something that you not only should want as a company, but it's something that I would argue you need in order to stay competitive. I don't understand how some companies think that they can have just one generation in their company and still plan to appeal to you know a broader group when it comes to consumers in general. So you know diversity is a strength and understanding. Understanding the nuances of generations can really help you attract and retain those generations as well. So I think it's important to have a discussion about what industries and companies can do to sort of broaden their appeal across a, a vast variety of generations. But first, I want to ask, are there any specific industries where, in your opinion, employers are doing a good job of that and, and they're better at managing different generations? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really sad to say, but in researching uh, generations, I haven't come across a specific industry that has excelled at this. Oh, no, swing and I know, mess. I know. Well, it's, it's too bad. And it's something that everybody's sort of grappling with right now, I'd say. And interestingly, from what I've seen, it's actually something that um, older companies are better at than newer companies. Because what we see happening in Silicon Valley, especially in all sorts of startups, is that they tend to skew so millennial and they're really struggling to appeal to older generations as well. Um, so it goes both ways. And, and honestly, as a legacy company or as a company that it's a little more established, you actually have uh, a bit of a better chance at accomplishing this than some of the others. What about then, maybe not from an industry-wide perspective, but are are there any companies that spring to mind as being employers where they've done a really good job at integrating their generational workforce? Yeah, so AT&T is one that stands out as a company that's put a lot of work not only behind, you know, establishing and creating that age diversity, but all sorts of diversity as well. And they've been really intentional about how they went about that. And one of the specific practices that they used was actually creating these cross-generational mentorship programs. So not only are these different generations tolerating each other in the workplace, they're actually actively benefiting from the different things that they bring to the table. So what lessons then can we take from AT&T and apply to the equipment manufacturing industry and the manufacturing industry in general? Because manufacturing as a sector right now is having a bit of a tough time finding the talent that it needs. Uh, in manufacturing, we see a, a workforce that is primarily composed of baby boomers and some Gen Xers. And as those people reach retirement age and exit the workforce, we're seeing this growing vacuum where millennials and Gen Zers aren't necessarily being drawn into the manufacturing industry. And so what lessons can we apply from case studies of AT&T about how AEM's members can take a generational mindset to their own workforce? I think a lot of it comes down to really, you know, not just relying on, say, putting a ping pong table in the conference room uh, in order to draw millennials in. Oh, that is my least favorite <laughs> stereotype yeah. about how to bring millennials in. It's very condescending. Uh, so the thing I'd say is it's kind of important to be really explicit about the ways in which you're catering to what the generations need. So generations like millennials, like I said, don't just want the ping pong table in the conference room, they want a lot more than that. And of course, every generation wants the basic things like respect in the workplace and, you know, work-life balance and that kind of thing. But what makes younger generations um, sort of unique in terms of what they expect from the workforce is that really that flexibility in terms of their work schedule. So if there's any way that you can sort of make some considerations with that, I think that would go a long way, even if it's just a shift in the right direction. 
Uh, I think it's important to, again, foster those really positive relationships between different generations within your company. So it's important not to just assume that that's going to happen on its own. So at Trend Hunter, one thing we do is we really purposely create these collisions between different teams uh, in order for them to sort of benefit from each other and sort of shake things up in terms of who they're interacting with. So I think sort of instituting a regular place where these groups can come together and learn from each other is super important as well. Sort of this notion of tearing down the organizational silos that keep employees in the workforce separate from each other then. Absolutely. And, you know, different departments tend to be very siloed as well. So, you know, at traditional corporate offices, the development team is often very young because these are people who know how to code and have become masters of it. So that's just one example of where it becomes all the more valuable to sort of break down those silos and bring people together for a common goal. In my experience at various organizations throughout the years, I've often found that there's like a little bit of pushback to those sort of efforts to break down the silos because ultimately I feel like silos happen because they're comfortable. (laughs) A lot of people like to stay in their comfort zone and they don't necessarily like to go out and introduce themselves to Bob from marketing or Jane from human resources. And so is there an exercise or a best practice that you know of that uh, companies, especially manufacturers, can use to sort of build those bridges throughout the workforce? Yeah, so I, I can do it. I can actually talk about how we do this at Trend Hunter, and it happens through sort of one of two ways. So one of the, I guess, more fun ways that we institute this is by having a you know fun bonding experience with the entire team where we'll go out and actually experience one of the trends that we write about. So that's an easy pull. Everybody obviously wants to go out for ice cream and, you know, socialize and that kind of thing. So that's an easy way to do it. Um, But actually a more effective way that we've done it and we're leaning more into now is having these uh, about once a month, we'll have a workshop where we're actually all coming together to solve one team's uh, problem. And this is happening through a workshop uh, that we all do. And the thing that I think drives it home is that there's always actually solid results that everybody can see as a result of coming together from those workshops. So I think really making sure that it's purposeful and that the results of that coming together is actually showing up and being visible to everyone is really critical to making sure that people feel like it's a, you know, a good use of their time. I like that notion a lot, actually, not just because it draws people together, but because it sort of allows a a fresh perspective in to help solve a problem that you're having come up regularly. I know that very often myself, I get stuck in sort of this feedback loop of I'm having a problem I can't figure out how to fix it. And so I get upset and then it makes my problem worse and I get stuck going around and around. And so I like that notion of bringing in a fresh perspective to help a team solve their problems. But I would imagine that the first time that you did that as a group, uh, whichever department had to go first felt pretty awkward about it. Like nobody likes stepping up to the plate and saying, oh, we got a real problem here, guys. Can you help? (laughs) Yeah, I think it was actually probably one of the more senior groups that went first just to sort of get over that hump. We didn't experience a ton of that, I think just because of the nature of the company here. We're very open about the problems that we do have, but we made sure that this didn't feel like it was a drag. We make sure that even though this is a workshop that has results, it's still something that's enjoyable to be a part of. So at 3 p.m., there's wine involved. We do it at a hotel down the street uh, where it's a pleasant environment to be on. And we always do them on Fridays in the afternoon. So there's actually a, a sort of casualness that's a part of the process as well that I think also keeps it pretty light and enjoyable. I found that the introduction of wine into almost any process makes really takes the edge off a little <laughs> bit, and makes it easier to tolerate. Yeah, true words never spoken. <laughs> so AEM as an organization uh, has more than a thousand members. 
many of them are long-standing manufacturers that have been in existence for more than 75 years, in some cases more than 100 years. In fact, AEM this year is celebrating its 125th anniversary as an organization. So as an industry, equipment manufacturing has been through a few generational shifts over time. Do you think that this topic of generational mindsets is a new one, or is this just something that we talk a little bit more about in this day and age? <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting question, because I think it certainly feels like we talk about it more and more these days, and there's certainly more platforms where people can make that discussion louder, I would say. But honestly, people assigning specific different attributes to specific generations is really a tale as old as time. There's examples of Aristotle talking about young people and stereotyping them. And that goes back, you know, uh, God knows how many centuries. So this really is sort of something that's been going on forever, but it's just getting a lot more lip service today. I actually, uh, a couple of years ago, I was talking to a fellow who does uh, management consulting for construction firms. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up because he mentioned sort of the same thing that some of the exact same baby boomers now who are cutting on millennials and Gen Zers about how they're soft and how they don't know the value of a good day's work. When those baby boomers joined the workforce 30, 40 years ago, they got ripped on by the older generation that had been there before they had as well for being soft and not knowing the value of a good day's work. So I really think that a, a good deal of this can just be written off to good old fashioned curmudgeonism. <laughs> That's probably fair to say. I mean, yeah, it, people have always taken issue with young people and the way that they do things differently. And, you know, there probably is some credibility to a number of those arguments. But I think the thing that millennials have taken on more than any other generation is that, you know, we are young in a way that is very public thanks to social media. So there's all the more material for older generations to pull from in terms of creating those stereotypes and reinforcing them and sort of proving them in a way. Is the advancement of technology beyond just social media and cell phones, is that impacting the gap? I think it is because in a lot of ways you see, like I said at the beginning of the interview, you know, there is that assumption that boomers don't know anything to do with technology. You know, they're technologically inept. They're unwilling to learn. But we know actually in our research that that's by and large not true. Uh, but even just the perception of that being true really holds a lot of boomers, for instance, back from roles that they might take on. And, you know, conversely, it actually sort of... Uh, kind of pigeonholes millennials in terms of what their skills are as well. So I want to dig in a little bit then on this concept of micro generations. And, and this is something that Trend Hunter is focused extensively on defining. But before we get into that, we kind of got to examine how generations have traditionally uh, been defined, how demographers have delineated between different generations. Is it really just as simple as drawing a line every 20 years and saying, okay, this is a new generation here. We need to come up with a catchy new nickname for them. It's kind of hard to believe, but it actually by and large does take place that way. And in a way that's really sort of very arbitrary. It seems like aside from boomers who were obviously inspired by the post-World War II boom, a lot of them were sort of tossed around by the media and, you know, it took a couple of years to figure out what everybody could agree on, but they sort of come to fruition in that sort of organic way. It's really not something that's done with a lot of uh, intention in mind, to be honest, which is maybe why they're so messy and broad. They just kind of threw it at the wall and saw what stuck. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, 
you guys have developed a better approach, I, I would say personally at Trent Hunter. Uh, you've delineate generations into what you call micro generations. So what are those and how do you go about divvying them up? Yeah, so there are nine micro generations. And what we've done is we've taken those four basic generations that everybody knows and we divided them by, you know, these delineations that are a little bit more meaningful uh, because we find more in common with these specific groups than with the, you know, the larger Gen X, let's say. And essentially what causes these micro generations to stick to each other here is is this more of a, a shared experience sort of a thing? Exactly. So we broke them down to be a little more specific in terms of the time range. And what they all had in common was these specific moments and their general lifespans uh, and their general characteristics that resulted from, you know, enduring those specific events. So again, this is obviously very broad and it will not apply to everybody in every micro generation, but we find it a lot more useful in terms of targeting and really understanding the nuances of each group. So under the boomers, we have the leading boomers. So these are the oldest boomers. They're between the ages of 65 and 73. And with this group, we see that they're primarily people who exhibit characteristics like being very dutiful, um, very adventurous, and actually highly idealistic, which is something that I don't think they get enough credit for. Uh, beneath them, we have the neo-boomers. So this is another very rebellious group. They're between the ages of 55 and 64. And we see that they're highly self-preserving. Again, they have that rebellious edge and they're actually very restless. And because of all of this, they're redefining what it means to grow old, which is really exciting to see. Under Gen X, we've broken this group out into two as well. So we have the older group, which is Gen XS. And because of all the recessions that they lived through and all that they've been through in general, uh, they're an incredibly independent, they're a very acquisitive group, and they're very persistent as well, which has uh, led to the fact the average age of the Fortune 500 CEO falls within this group at age 50. So the younger sister group of Gen X is actually Gen Zeno. So they're between the ages of about 38 to 45 now. And these are sort of the classic Gen X that we've come to know and love. They're very anarchistic is the word that we use. They're also incredibly pragmatic. So they're very practical. Uh, and they're actually more tech savvy than they get credit for as well. So under millennials, this is such a huge group that we actually had to split them into three. So at the very top, we have the pro-millennial. So they are very competitive. They're about 32 to 37. Then we have the mid-millennial. I'm actually in this cohort between 26 to 31. And lastly, we have the nouveau millennial from 21 to 25. Uh, so the nouveau millennial are actually the ones that were uh, helicopter parented the most, which <laughs> has resulted in a lot of the things that we hate about millennials, I guess you could say. And the pro millennials were actually the last group in the millennial generation or the only group to escape helicopter parenting. So they actually show up in the world a lot differently than you might expect. I actually fall into that category myself, and I've heard the pro-millennial generation be called the Oregon Trail generation. Mm. Uh, the idea being that we grew up playing the eponymous video game Oregon Trail, which not only did you play on a really old 386-style computer, but you had to load in using three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks and load from a <laughs> DOS prompt. So we're sort of the micro-generation that didn't grow up with social media, we didn't grow up with smartphones, they came to us when we were already 
in college or in our mid to early 20s, sort of like that. Yeah. And what we've seen interestingly with that group is that because social media came out at a time when your group was just beginning to have these huge accomplishments, like getting into university or graduating university, uh, that group is actually shown to be the most competitive on social media and just be more competitive in general than we see in other groups. Oh, go on. Say more nice things about me. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. They're very accomplished, uh, very reliable people as well. So, Using this framework then, uh, what else can we use this framework for? Like when we're looking at the difference between the two generations of baby boomers, as a for instance, how can we use this more specific understanding of those generations to build a stronger workforce? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I think it's important not to overuse a framework like this or any other framework that is about, you know, broad points about generations. I think that's where you can get in trouble, especially if you misunderstand a data point and over apply it in terms of your strategy. Uh, but, you know, as long as you're using it in a way that's like more leaning into it and using it as context, I think it could be really helpful in terms of understanding how to appeal to a specific generation, how to to keep them happy in the workforce, which is, you know, another whole piece of the puzzle is, you know, making sure that they want to stay at your company. Um, it can be useful just in terms of understanding what's going on with them more broadly. So for example, that Nouveau millennial, they're dealing with student loans that are much worse than we see with the pro millennial, which can affect what they expect in terms of their salary uh, and that kind of thing as well. So uh, it's very nuanced, but it's always helpful to just have that information to, you know, use this context and background information. I'd like to kind of uh, plumb the depths of that a little bit more here. What are some of the other things that you can do to make your workforce more attractive to people from the different micro generations? Can we kind of go through case by case and, and pick out something that can really help motivate people in the workforce if they are of a, a certain cohort? Yeah, sure. I mean, I said this earlier and you have to make sure that you have the basics down. So you're paying people fairly, you people are getting that respect that they desire in the workforce. And, you know, they just have the general conditions that we all expect in terms of a baseline. But beyond that, we actually see that uh, Gen X and millennials actually put a bigger emphasis on salary than boomers. And that might be because of the, you know, debt that a lot of them are under. Um, but for Gen X, they really value flexibility, which is something that shows up with millennials and a huge, uh, to a huge degree as well. It's something that they really uh, value and work-life balance sort of falls into that as well. Uh, for millennials, we also know that they have a really strong desire to feel like they're part of something bigger and that they have a lot of room to grow. Another thing I'll add with the millennials is that we're in the bit of a loneliness epidemic when it comes to North America right now. And you could say that more broadly too, uh, but we really see it in North America most predominantly. And for millennials and we see them really seeking out these communities. And that's very true of the workplace as well. So not to go back to the ping pong table that I was talking about earlier, but whatever you can do to help facilitate those bonds and that feeling of community when people come to work is actually going to be really valuable when it comes to attracting and retaining talent, especially. Just sort of creating that feeling of belonging. And I, I like that you brought this notion of, of needing a, a sense of one's place in the world, because I think that that's something that as companies in the equipment manufacturing sector go about trying to recruit and retain this younger workforce, I feel like the focus has sort of shifted from, well, how much are you going to pay them and what benefits are you going to provide to taking the approach of this is why what you do has a larger effect in changing the world and making the world a better place. 
Are there any other sort of specific tips that you have for manufacturers as as they're trying to retool their approach to hiring and recruiting and retaining talent from a a labor pool that is getting younger and and they've not necessarily been able to have a lot of success drawing from in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of what it comes down to is treating your prospective, uh, you know, employee kind of the same way that you would a prospective consumer or a prospective client. You, you really want to draw these people in and make sure that you're putting experience at the forefront of what it's like to engage with your company. So not only being explicit about what those benefits are and alleviating what worries they may have, but like you said earlier, making sure that they're going to feel like they're part of something bigger and something that's moving the world forward in a way that aligns with their values. So when it comes to employers, specifically manufacturers that are trying to attract, recruit, and retain younger workers into their workforce, what are some of the most common mistakes that employers are making? I think something that they do is they, you know, they assume they can pull in millennials and maybe they even succeed at doing that, but they're not very intentional about the way in which those groups interact with each other. And I think the biggest misstep of all is just not doing any coaching about how people can manage and can really effectively coach people who are from different backgrounds and different ages specifically. It's kind of something that's left out of the diversity equation we see a lot of the time. And I think just even putting a little more money, a little more investment behind that coaching would make a huge difference. You know, I think you're onto something there because I feel like for years and years, the approach to building an intergenerational workforce has just been okay, well, we'll put them together and they will figure it out. (laughs) Uh, Not sort of counting on the human nature of, you know, finding your silo, finding your comfort zone and then staying within that. Mm -hmm. So what what programs are available for employers to do a better job of stirring the pot with that? I mean, I think always tapping into your human resources department to be really prescriptive and very specific about what actions they can take in order to facilitate more of that coaching and more of that um, involvement that I think is a really powerful step. I think it's for many companies, it's just getting started on this because frankly, I haven't seen a lot of programs in action and there's not even a lot of research out there. So it's just a matter of getting started on uh, making that happen and even maybe just getting feedback from people who work at your company on how they could better, you know, be aligned and uh, sort of learn up to that. Does that responsibility lie exclusively with human resources departments or are there other folks that need to pick up the slack as well? Yeah, it, it definitely shouldn't. And you know what? That's a really good point. So it may be a good place to start because this is, of course, something that can be very sensitive as well. Uh, but I think your ideal point would be where everybody at the company feels empowered and feels educated in terms of how to navigate this kind of issue. Given the specific nature of the equipment manufacturing industry is this place where companies have had a lot of success doing the thing that they've done for decades and decades in a row here. And and there are certainly some entrenched mentalities. How should AEM members position themselves to better compete for top talent in 2020 and beyond? Ooh, that's a good one. So I my big point here would be not to over-rely on your company's legacy because millennials have seen so many huge companies topple out of the new era of disruption that we're in. So, you know, saying that you're going to go work for a huge company doesn't really have the same panache as it used to. And it does, certainly doesn't hold up to something as cool as saying that I'm going to go work for, say, Google. So 
young people today, especially, they want to work for companies that are driving the world forward. So as much as, of course, the legacy is hugely important, it's also really important to focus on the vision for the future. Courtney, we've talked a lot about the classic generations that uh, many employers know and have played a big role in the workforce up to date. But there's this new trend coming just when you think you've got it figured out. Gen Z is starting to enter the workforce now. Who are they and and what can we expect as they start to become a part of the workforce? Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting to see them entering the workforce because they are, by and large, the, uh, you know, children of Gen X. So they definitely have inherited that rebellious spirit and their entrepreneurial spirit as well. So many of them probably won't even come to work at your company. They will start their own thing. Uh, Very uh, rather, we're seeing a shift in terms of how many of them are actually going to get formal schooling. Many of them are shunning these student loans in order to sort of uh, go do their own thing. But that entrepreneurial spirit is really going to be an asset in terms of whatever company that they join. And for them, it's just going to be really important that they can exercise that entrepreneurial spirit and see their ideas in motion. I guess what's the best way to get value out of a generation that values an entrepreneurial spirit? Because it sounds like they're just going to come in and disrupt everything. (laughs) And if they do, is that really a problem? I think the best thing you can do with a generation like that is just empower them and give them some guardrails, of course, but they are really going to value that independence and that flexibility. So uh, you might actually just be really capping uh, what it is that their potential is by keeping them, you know, too specific within a scope or a specific project to see their full potential. You're going to have to loosen the reins a little bit, I'd say. Well, Courtney, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I think there are a lot of insights that equipment manufacturers can look to apply to their own workforces. So thank you for those. Senior Vice President of Research Services at Trend Hunter, Courtney Scharf, thank you for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. My pleasure. Courtney and Trend Hunter's take on microgenerations in the workforce is a great example of how AEM continues to expose its members to bold new ideas for staying on the cutting edge of the industry. And another example that you're not going to want to miss is coming up at next year's ConExpo ConAg trade show in Las Vegas. In the Tech Experience Pavilion, AEM will unveil a 10 by 22 foot model of the smart city of the future, complete with sensor networks, data processing, and the ability to respond to changing conditions. It's a very cool chance to see some of the future forward concepts that we talk about on this show get deployed on a model scale. So if you haven't made your arrangements to attend ConExpo ConAg yet, you'd best get cracking. It's March 10th through the 14th. Visit ConExpoConAg.com to learn more. Also, make sure that your calendar is marked for the AEM Product Safety Seminar. That's April 27th through the 30th in the suburbs of Chicago. It's a great chance to meet and network with other professionals like you and learn about business strategies that drive safety in our industry. Well, that is going to wrap up this edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. For more valuable industry insights, make sure that you're signed up for the AEM Industry Advisor, our twice-weekly e-newsletter visit aem.org slash subscribe. If you need to get in touch with me, shoot me an email at podcast at aem.org. The AEM Thinking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Little Glass Men does the music for this show. And for AEM, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.